Welcome to the Stephen Perkins Program, the show where I talk to my friends in politics about culture and other current events and issues. I'm Stephen Perkins. Thanks for listening. On this week's episode, I'm talking with Evan Schrage. Uh, Evan is a law student from Illinois, and he writes for us at OutsetMagazine.com. And on this show, I talk with him about last week's Supreme Court decision in which the Supreme Court struck down the Texas health regulations for abortion clinics. We also talk about the gun control debate in the context of the Second Amendment and constitutional rights. And then we end the show by talking about how wonderful America is and why our haters might be so jealous. So here we go. Please enjoy my conversation with Evan Schrage. In, in your view, what was the significance of Monday's Supreme Court decision? Well, I think the big thing to you understand here is there wasn't really um, any big, there wasn't going to be any kind of big shift coming with regards to abortion. Like the Supreme Court just wasn't going to just strike down abortion as unconstitutional in itself. Um, I think the real issue with what happened at the Supreme Court on Monday was that the court took a law that Texas thought was going to make abortion clinics safer um, and said that, well, you, your evidence, we don't really like your, the evidence that was presented, um, and so we're going to invalidate that uh, based on um, essentially with the medical necessity of the restrictions that you're imposing on abortion clinics outweighed the um, satisfaction, I guess, to use the term that a woman would receive from getting the procedure done. So I think that that's a big step away from what certainly the, what we traditionally think of as the powers of the state um, and puts, puts, I think, abortion on a path for a more, definitely more cases to come in the future. This certainly wasn't the end all be all one way or the other. Yeah. So one interesting thing about the Texas law, and I remember watching the debates whenever they had those debates and when uh, Wendy Davis did her big filibuster and mm-hmm. got a national prominence there, uh, the whole time it was framed as this, uh, it was framed within the context of the health of the women, the safety of the clinics. Um, there's been a lot of comparisons now saying that without this law, the clinics um, are, are less safe than, um, than kind of these kind of convenient clinics you see around, um, around corners. But do you think that people kind of bought the idea that this was about safety or was, did people kind of see past this and see this was kind of a broader, um, a, a broader dig at abortion as a, as an issue completely? Um, well, we know s- the way six justices thought about this. Um, they they kind of saw past um, some of the restrictions. So I guess essentially what the what the law said is that if you're going to open an abortion clinic and you're going to perform abortions, you have to have admitting pl- privileges. You, the doctor, have to have admitting privileges at a um, a hospital that's thirty miles away, um, and your the clinic has to be met at the standards of a, um, a regular surgery center. Um, that works great if, you know, we're in a state that's the size of 
you know, Connecticut or Rhode Island or one of these very small, smaller states where it's all metropolitan kind of all the time. But that doesn't really help out, you know, obviously you're from Texas, Stephen, so you know, but um, near the border and some of the more out western parts of Texas, there aren't very many people around, much less hospitals. And so to have an abortion clinic out there under this law, you'd have, it couldn't be done. There's no <laughs> admitting privilege. And I think that that's um, where they took the most issue with the requirements that the Texas legislature was trying to impose. Um, and again, going back to that costs outweighing the benefits of, you know, being able to access the procedure. So I think on the whole, um, in the metropolitan, if, you know, if, if we were talking about this in the context of an abortion clinic in Dallas, we probably wouldn't have too much of an issue with it because that just seems like a every, there's hospitals, you know, pretty much everywhere and within 30 miles that would be very easy but when it's, you know, uh in a border town, you know, 50 miles from the nearest hospital, that's not very, you know, conducive to the woman or the, you know, anybody. So I think that that it was a clear mixture on both sides it had both points, but I think especially in a larger state like Texas, it was there was there are some things that just didn't seem right there. Right, and so that leads to two questions. I think a lot of people, a lot of pro-life people, are wondering kind of what's next in in the realm of, of fighting against abortion. Um, but one thing that I'm interested in is um, how this quote unquote right to an abortion came about. And um, if you read, I, um, I'm trying to remember which justice justice it was, but I, I think. Um, I think it was it was Justice Thomas. He talked about this being uh, a right that was essentially created by the judiciary branch, and it's kind of ironic that they don't protect actual constitution rights, but with this, they were very vigorous in protecting it. Talk a little bit about kind of where this right came from and and what he may have been hinting at there. Right. So obviously, I, I think everybody knows the the big case that kind of established abortion rights in this country um, was Roe versus Wade, which was a um, decision by the Supreme Court in, in the 1970s, um, ironically, also coming from the state of Texas, again, uh, where a woman was denied access to an abortion and proceeded through, and the court essentially said that uh, Women in the first tri- who are in their first trimester have a uh, privacy right to consider whether or not and actually perform an abortion, um, as so long as the as the child's within its first trimester. That's um, an incorporation of the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment being applied to the states. Um, that changed actually a little bit. Um, Roe versus Wade isn't actually the standard very much anymore. Um, it's actually Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is a case that dealt with um, Pennsylvania wanted to put some restrictions on abortions and things of that nature requiring spousal consent, um, a 24-hour waiting period, um, minors that wanted to get abortions needed to notify their parents and things like that. And so the court looked at those again and it kind of reevaluated Roe by saying, um, you know, as lo- so long as you're not placing an undue burden on a person seeking an abortion while the fetus is not or is viable, 
um, can live outside the um, the woman's womb, um, the state has the unfettered state has a lot more leeway in how it goes about restricting abortions before the fetus becomes or while the fetus is viable. I'm sorry, um, and so that's kind of why you see more of these twenty week abortion bans now. Um, and things like that. And so a lot of this all comes from the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which really set about the kind of incorporation doctrine um, for the other amendments. And, and you know, I know you want to get talking about guns here in a minute, but that's kind of where at least the, the justices have found that the right to privacy, um, though also not having not explicitly existing anywhere in the Constitution, um, does exist through the 14th Amendment. Okay. Uh, now, I remember asking you, after this ruling came down, I was interested in the language of un, uh, undue burden, right? So they, they essentially said you cannot place an undue burden on this right. Um, and, and I asked you, in the context of, of gun rights, the Second Amendment rights, how is it different? Um, how is there no, or, or rather, whenever cases come up, um, how is it okay to have a restriction on Second Amendment rights when there's kind of that undue burden standard. And you had an interesting response. Can you talk a little more about that? Right. Sure. So um, Second Amendment rights, obviously the Second Amendment of the Constitution says the right of the people to keep and bear arms, you know, shall not be infringed. Um, the problem is, is when that kind of, that amendment was written, it didn't apply to the states. And it didn't apply to um, state governments, and so they were pretty much free to do kind of whatever they wanted with that amendment. The federal government had a harder time. Um, that all changed after the two most recent cases, D.C. versus uh, Heller and McDonald versus the city of Chicago, where the Supreme Court said that the Second Amendment needs to be incorporated into the um, uh, into the the states needed to follow the Second Amendment's provisions and that it's each individual citizen has a personal right to carry firearms. Um, so that, but it's important to remember that those, that those cases came way later than Roe versus Wade. And so when we had things like the um, assault weapons ban in the 90s uh, and early 2000s, that's all before the Second Amendment had kind of officially been incorporated into um, the the fold of uh, practices for the states to follow, mm -hmm. and so when we talk about you know gun restrictions and things like that, we we have a problem because we haven't really seen a major case since um, D.C. versus Heller and McDonald versus City of Chicago, and so until we see that, we won't be able to um, you know make a determine on how just how unfair. Uh, the treatment would be between, you know, I guess abortion and gun rights. Um, although I, I will say, though, like I was telling you earlier um, about it, when you evaluate a gun, whether or not a proposal to limit firearms is constitutional, the justices have kind of used what's called strict scrutiny. Um, be, which is reserved for the most fundamental of basic human rights. It's used often for uh, free speech cases and race cases and things like that. And that higher level of scrutiny that just basically says if it's not narrowly tailored and the least restrictive means 
that the state chose to go about doing it, it's going to get struck down. And we saw that um, with McDonald versus the city of Chicago, where the city, my city, um, decided to basically try and legislate gun stores out of existence. And the Supreme Court came back and said, no, you can't do that. This is a fundamental right of the people to keep and bear arms, and they need to be able to access those firearms, and you can't really do that unless there are gun stores around. And so, and that's somewhat similar to what was going on in this abortion case, although not completely analogous. Right. Um, so in, in the realm of, of gun rights, obviously after Orlando, there was a lot of outrage, as there is after every mass shooting. But this one even led to now um, Democrats in Congress staging a sit-in um, to uh, essentially say we want a bill or we don't want to take a break. No bill, no break was one of the things they did, as, long, as well as no fly, no buy. Um, you wrote an article recently about the Feinstein proposal at outset, and her proposal was essentially the, along with Senator Murphy, was the restriction on if you are on this list um, that's, or, or if you are suspected of certain activities that you should not be able to buy these weapons. And so we've been seeing a lot of discussion about due process um, and a lot of people, I think, have looked at the Republicans, um, and, and there's been some frustration there because uh, there's been a lot of talk about, well, we can't restrict due process, but a lot of people don't understand, well, these people are on essentially terrorist watch lists. Why should they be able to get guns? And so this, this conversation about due process, I think, is really interesting. But can you talk a little bit about not only what the Feinstein Amendment would have done, but what just this general scope of no fly, no buy um, and, and the other restrictions that they're wanting to put into place, what that does in terms of due process. Um, yeah, so as I say in my article on uh, Outset, you you have Senator Feinstein, who is the author of the assault weapons ban back in the late 90s. Um, and so she's tried several times to get this back, but... Um, the most recent proposal was one that was about, and it was an amendment to some other gun bill that basically would have empowered the Attorney General of the United States to keep anybody from purchasing a firearm who was suspected of being a terrorist or sympathizing or preparing to commit terrorism or the actual language of the bill had a lot of Pretty much if we have any kind of reasonable suspicion that you are about to engage, are engaging, support or, um, you know, would support terrorism, things like that, uh, you can be denied access to a firearm. And if you felt that you were, you know, mistaken, if you, you know, you were the wrong Stephen Perkins that was on the, the uh, no fly or terror watch list, you could go. Um, and get a redress of grievances. The only problem is, is that it was the attorney general who would have to review their own mistake. And if they felt that you were still properly kept off that list, then they wouldn't have to necessarily tell you why, because they also have national security concerns to worry about. And if there's an ongoing investigation against you or the person that was actually you, um, they're not going to tell you that. And so it's just a very like, like scary process. Not not only one because there's 
almost no chance of an actual remedy, but the fact is you haven't really done anything wrong, you know, when you when you go and try and purchase a firearm. Like I say, it's not a it's not a crime to like look at ISIS's videos and you know uh, share them and look at uh, sympathize with um, you know what you may consider to be freedom fighters in another country. That's not necessarily a crime. It's a, it's a crime if you, you know are you know going out and you know bopping people on the head and telling them to support ISIS. But that's not necessarily what you might be doing. And so I think that when we start restricting people's most fundamental freedoms for no other reason that we think that they might commit a crime someday in the future, that's a very scary precedent to go down. And I don't really trust that in the hands of anybody, let alone people who might happen to be my ideological opponents. Right. And, and I may very well be on the no-fly list for some of the <laughs> tweets that I've done. But other than that, I mean, I, I see this kind of in the same light as, uh, as domestic surveillance in the sense that, okay, you have this person who may be engaged or, or may very well be engaging in, in suspicious activity, may mm-hmm. have um, these ill intentions, but that's really not enough to where you can swoop in and start surveilling on someone or, or start restricting their rights. And even in the case of the Orlando shooting, what I find most interesting about all these proposals that came post Orlando is none of them would have stopped this person. Um, and of course, people will say, well, the, the point is not that we want to stop that, but it's stopping future things. And, 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 but it's like you said, it's expanding powers in a way that um, I think you should ask yourself, would I want this power in the hands of the people I don't agree with? If, if the president becomes a Republican, would I want the Republican president to have those powers? You know, that mm-hmm. should be the question you should ask if you're a Democrat. But I, I think what's most shocking about these restrictions is that, like you said, it, it doesn't, um, or, or rather, it, it makes it to where the person has to then petition the government for their rights back, petition the government um, to get off of this list or to be cleared, their name to be cleared. And there's no other instance where you really have to do that. No other, No other instance that I can think of that you have to find out that you've essentially been convicted and then you go and petition the government to to do that and and many times the burden of proof is on the citizen and there's been some amendments that say that now the government should you know the burden proof should be on the government Um, there should be a separate list i think john cornyn of texas had a bill or an amendment where there'd be a separate list but all of that i think adds kind of all these bureaucratic layers um, and doesn't actually solve the issue, whereas I haven't seen any proposal that would have stopped the Orlando shooting. Right. There's been some talk about if uh, there was another amendment offered, I think, that if you had been placed on a terror watch list, you you were basically, if you had been placed on a terror watch list and removed or were still on, you... Anytime you try to buy a firearm in the next five years, um, the attorney general would be notified of that. And they could put in place, they could go and either stop it or they could just, you know, keep another eye on, retrain their eye back on you. And I think that while that's not necessarily 
the ideal situation that we'd want. I think that, you know, if especially because the Orlando shooter had been taken off the terror watch list, I think it was, what, two or three times he had been placed on and taken off again. Um, and so it's always that constant struggle to balance personal freedom with um, the safety of the nation. And if something like that had been in place, I'm not necessarily sure at this moment if I'd be in for it, but I think that it's a big step away from no, absolutely no firearm for you at all, as opposed to, well, you can have your firearm, but we're going to watch you again. I think this puts a lot of people in that position, especially re- Republicans. And um, th- there's no doubt that there is kind of this broader problem. And whether you want to paint it as a gun problem or a mental health issue or the numerous ways you can paint it, I, I think that it does put Republicans in this in this corner because, um, you know, they say perception is reality. And the perception is that Republicans uh, do not have any type of gun reforms that they are willing to agree upon. Um, and I think there's some legitimate claims when people say, well, that's because they're bought by the NRA and the NRA has, has in my view, like sometimes an, a very extreme message. Like sometimes they go way, way beyond what I would even consider reasonable uh, uh, protection yeah. of the Second Amendment. But so I, I think a lot of people are just thinking, well, well, gee, what can we do? What can be put through? Are there any proposals that you've heard of that seem to have Republican backing um, or anything that um, I, I know the NRA kind of moved a little bit, the NRA and Donald Trump on the whole no fly, no buy thing. But have there's, has there been anything else that you've observed? Uh, well, you mentioned the uh, Cornyn Amendment earlier. That one um, would have essentially done kind of the same thing as the Feinstein Amendment, except the Attorney General would have had to have gone to court um, and had a judge cleared their uh, request for a denial of a, a request for a stay on your right to purchase a firearm. And I think that one had a little bit more Republican support um, as opposed to, you know, I'm forgetting something done. The problem was, of course, that Democrats didn't want to do it because it was a Republican bill and Republicans didn't want to do the Democrat bill because it was a Democrat bill. And so I think the real problem is not necessarily that any one party doesn't want to do anything. It's just we have this like aurora about partisanship Mm -hmm. in this country that if we're not the ones getting it done, then the other side just doesn't have any idea what it's talking about. And that's a terrible bill. And it's, I remember uh, I was watching C-SPAN when the House Democrats were talking about what they were doing their sit-in and um, Nancy Pelosi the minority leader was talking about, well, they'd rather pass the Zika bill than get something done on gun rights. And she called it the horrible Zika bill or something. And that's, you know, this thing where demonizing any piece of legislation that's not what we want and any kind of thing. And it's, I think that's what's holding us back more so than the majority parties uh, in the legislature now just don't happen to have any solutions. I think they do. I think that they're just a scared because it's, it is an election year. And so that's always more troubling, but I don't think, um, I don't think that's 
all of it. I think a lot more has to do with, well, the Democrats just aren't going to vote for whatever we want anyway because we don't have the five extra seats that we need to override a filibuster. And so we might as well just not try. Yeah, and I think that's part of a broader interesting trend that's been happening just in Congress since probably 2008, you know, or early mm-hmm. 2000s of just an, an extreme partisanship. And then also there have been instances with different things like the, the immigration bill where they came very close on collaborating on these important issues. Um, but then each mm-hmm. side kind of wants more, kind of wants a little more of the credit, wants a little more of their specific logistics in it and then it kind of falls apart i i I think it's it's unfortunate the state that that congress is in um and unfortunately just opens up the executive branch to making claims that they have uh, the responsibility to to then take action on their own and so i think it's part of this very dangerous trend um and and on that note the fourth of july is coming up it's when we celebrate um, it's when we celebrate our history. It's when we celebrate this monumentous day. And the original Brexit. The Brexit. original Brexit. That's right. We did it first. <laughs> but the, the broader thing about uh, the 4th of July that I like to talk about is this idea of American exceptionalism. And I know we just talked about how Congress can't get anything done and how there's all these divisions within the country. But I want to talk a little bit about American exceptionalism. Um, specifically, is it still alive in the sense that it was um, maybe in the 20th century? You know, is there still this long list of um, of incredible American contributions to the world society, or has our uh, ha- have our problems that have come up recently kind of eroded at that list a little bit? What's your take on American exceptionalism? I mean, I, I certainly like to think. American exceptionalism is alive and well, but then again, I am biased as a red-blooded American. <laughs> I'll continue to think that until our dying day. But um, no, I think that all in all, I think the United States is still contributing more to the world kind of society, world culture than more people give us credit for. Um, it may have shifted a little bit. We may not be the manufacturing, you know, power of the world that we once were, you know, but then we have, you know, people that want to kind of take that back uh, and make that part of it great again, uh, Donald Trump. And, uh, but we are still contributing, I think, on a whole to, you know, world peace and security, despite what people have, you know, kind of labeled as, like an imperialistic attitude, I think that on the whole, um, when it comes to world affairs, people still look up to us for leadership, despite what you know the talking heads on the radio want to say. I think that we still have this very important role to play in world affairs, in part because we allow other countries to conduct their business in ways that they would otherwise not normally be able to. If we were not this kind of, you know, gigantic, uh, we didn't have this presence that we do. Yeah, I, I think you know. Listen, we we obviously have contributed a lot. We have we brought the Kardashians into existence. True. Um, there's all these wonderful musicians um, that have come out, uh, and, and so I, I think that 
Um, we certainly have a role to play. I think one of the, the libertarian streaks in me will say that perhaps we, uh, we try to influence regions too much. Uh, mm. But nonetheless, I would say that um, the ideas that we are founded upon are still to this day very unique. People will say that um, American democracy or the American republic form that we have is not really that unique. But I say that it's actually quite exceptional. And in the places that have tried it in the modern era, they have not been as successful as we have been. And I think that's part of because we have this shared sense um, of not only identity, but also purpose. And we kind of understand the broader picture there. And I like to think that even um, as our divides are, are growing, um, that we still have that. And I hate to say it, but um, you know, after 9-11, there was this grand unification of the country. And, and sometimes it, it, it has taken tragedy to unite us. Um, but nonetheless, I think times like the 4th of July are just in general, I think that it, it, it's a good time to come together and, and kind of think about what are the positive contributions we've given uh, to the world. And on top of that, um, what are some of the ways that we can continue to, Im to positively impact the world? Um, and Evan, I just want to say, as, as a red-blooded American, you've been doing your part. Um, you, you, your writing on Outset has been extraordinary. Um, your Twitter is awesome. Uh, so <laughs> I, I want to give a, I want to give a moment to let you let you plug yourself and where people can find you. Oh, wonderful! Um, again, I'm Evan Shragi. Uh, I write exclusively at Outset magazine. I've uh, been there since January. It's been a great experience so far. Talented pool of writers. Please check them out. My Twitter is my name, at Evan Shragi, S-C-H-R-A-G-E. Um, you'll find me. I think I have a bit strip uh, avatar of me right now. It's probably going to stay around for a while. So That's like the hip uh, thing now. It is. It's what the kids are doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you to Evan for coming on the show this week. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Perkins, on Facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins, and on OutsideMagazine.com, along with some other uh, really talented conservative and libertarian writers. I recommend that you check out their writing as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Have a happy 4th of July. Mm -hmm.